The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put down the X-ray specs and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 244 with guest Scott Stanfield, recorded live Tuesday, May 22, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now... Bring the ASP.NET Masterclass on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who interviewed the Invisible Man and got nothing, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's our Thursday show. We're still tech ed. Hi, Richard. Hey. Yes, we're still tech ed. We should be good and tired by now. Hey. You know what it reminds me of every time you say, Hey. You ever have that album Big Bamboo by Cheech and Chong? You ever hear the uh, advertisement for the hickey off pimple pads? <laughs> hey, groovy guys, got a big day tonight, but got a big zit in the middle of your forehead? I mean the big juicy kind, looks like a third eye. <laughs> well, if they've been calling you Cyclops, don't get uptight, because now there's new hickey off pimple pads. Hey. <laughs> yeah. No, that hadn't occurred to me. Actually. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, we're just trying to do our job here. The challenge of, of TechEd is it is a week. It's a marathon conference. Right. So by Thursday, your eyes are bugging out of your head. Yep. Also, the amount of junk food starts to decline as the week goes on. There's more apples and, you know, real food. And, and people are happy to see it because, let's face it, you can't eat ding-dongs after every session for five days straight. I love your ice cream story, Richard. Tell that uh, one more time. The great ice cream story. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, it, was, it was in San Diego. Right. Where I finally was scoping out how the Haagen-Dazs work. Because every time I went to those ice cream containers, all they had in them were those lime freezies from like Dallas 99. That's right. Nobody that was been eating following them. from show to show. That had obviously been cooled in liquid nitrogen because they went directly <laughs> to frozen to your skin, right? You wouldn't actually put one of these things in your mouth because you'd never get it out again. Do you think they were frozen with nitrogen? I don't know. They, you know, you could also use them as construction materials because they were so hard. <laughs> And nobody ate them. They just sat at the bottom of these coolers. But the coolers were always half empty. And I kept hearing rumor that there was Haagen-Dazs, but you never see it. And then one day I'm scouting in the halls and the conference gnomes come out. 
Yes. Right? The little folks that are, and they're not actually little, but they're, you know, they're wearing uniforms and they come out of walls, which is kind of spooky. Yeah, like, they, they didn't do. know there was a door. They just sort of come out of the walls and they grab all these ice cream coolers and they push them into the walls. Yeah. So then I'm like, well, what's going on? And the interesting thing then is you see all the experienced tech ed folks all start coming out. Right. And they're hovering in the hall. They know sort of Hagen Dazs is coming. There's sort of a tension in the air, right? That little ice cream hum. <laughs> and then the gnomes come out of the walls again, but now they've got the coolers and they're full. And they're, and they start pushing them back to where they came from and they're being trailed by geeks. Lots of them. Yeah. And you could, these, the gnomes are starting to sweat. Like, they're getting worried. They, <laughs> a, the, the trays are heavy, right? They're pushing these great big coolers, and they're being pursued by a large number of people. So, long story short, the ice cream doesn't last long. Oh, no, no, no. Because once that guy got that thing in the corner and jumped out of the way, I stopped to take a photo because I it looked like piranhas attacking, right? <laughs> I wanted a picture of that. But when they, I, I take the picture, then I get there, there's nothing but lime freezies in the bottom of the flipping cooler. Yeah. So I learned you cannot take a photo of a Hagen Doss event. You must wade in and get your Hagen Doss or you're out of luck. Right. So the uh the the brilliance of this comes in Richard's session, which uh he did at one of these uh you know, during the ice cream rush. And uh in every time what is it, every time somebody stumped you on a question, you gave him a Hagen Doss? That's right. I went and bought a case of Hagen Doss, put it in a cooler. Like my, at the my store. Own. Right. Brought it in, yeah. And I had a Friday afternoon session. And this gets back to my whole thought about you are brain damaged by Friday <laughs> yeah. at Tech Ed. <laughs> so uh, I, I told the track chair, I think it was Matt Nunn, actually. I said, Matt, it's Friday afternoon. I'm only telling jokes. Like, come on. Well, I'll talk about Profiler and all that good stuff. But people are toast. So right. I had a case of haagen And I told this story. And then I said, all right, ask a question. Get a haagen Because it's the only way I could get one. I had to go buy my own. Right. So that was very popular, actually. <laughs> yeah. People quite like that. Brilliant. Except for the guy who is who is harassing me about some content in my session. I'm saying, sorry, criticism does not qualify for a hot <laughs> You got to ask a question. <laughs> so there, there. All right. Well, let me uh, let me educate our listeners. This is a session that we're doing new this week. Instead of the second email, we're gonna instead of reading two, we're gonna read one. And here is your class. The random number generator class. Now, this is in system.security.cryptography. The doc says it represents the abstract class from which all implementations of cryptographic random number generators derive. Now, this is an interesting thing because computers aren't all that random. And this is an abstract class, but uh, you, the, it, it does have a create method. So if you want to use it by itself... You can just use the create method. It returns an instance of random number generator. And you can use this to re- generate random values. There's a get bytes, which fills an array of bytes with a cryptographically strong sequence of random values. So there you go. Now, this is, and I know what you were going to ask me, Richard. This is from system security cryptography, meaning that it's strong. It's, it gives you strong enough randomization to uh, work in cryptography. Right, so that's way more random than most random functions we've had to program against. Right, it's ra- more random than, say, the random uh, object system random uh, that you would use to, you know, just create random numbers if you don't need them to be strong. So there you go. System.security.cryptography.randomNumberGenerator. Richard, you got an email? I do indeed. Uh, this one from Tom Morgan. 
Dear Carl and Richard, I've been a long-time listener since episode 97, uh-huh. and I've had the pleasure of seeing you both on the roadshow in D.C. Hearing Clementine live was a real treat, and you did Clementine again at DevTeach. Yeah. And it had been a long time since I'd heard that, actually. That's right. Anyway, to the, off to the rest of the email. Thanks for having Franz on your show. He's talking about Franz Buma. We have been using LLBL Gen for over a year, and it definitely saved us 30 to 40% of development time, as he claims. Okay. I inherited a large ASP project that manages refugees coming to the U.S., and we are gradually moving to ASP.NET and smart clients as we go. Franz's tool lets us keep the current format of the database while we build up a middle layer using generated classes from LLBL Gen as a base. Ah. I believe you missed the point about parts of his tool, though. The tool does not generate stored procs. It lets you wrap stored procs, and it creates a method that will call your existing stored procs, but the real power of the tool is that it generates SQL based on the entity model. For example, if you just updated two properties in an entity that has 10 properties and told it to save itself, it would generate the SQL to update just those two fields. This is much more efficient than what we had at ASP, where we would call a stored procedure that would update all the fields for a record. Hmm. I didn't think I missed that. I thought that was the whole point of LLBL Gen, that it would take work with the existing data structures and the existing star procedures. You must have picked up on something we said. Perhaps. That I don't remember. Where we have made the most gains is in our search screens, where we replaced a search screen with 12 search fields that called a stored procedure with 12 parameters and 12 pages of SQL code with one page of code using LLBL Gen classes. Ah. Debugging one page of C-sharp is much easier than 12 pages of SQL stored procedure. Yeah. However, our DBA is concerned about dynamically generated SQL, but we have not seen any performance decrease, and sometimes we see an increase due to more efficient code that was generated. I've been very proud of my team as we delete more and more old stored procs with each release. Hmm. It was also interesting to learn that Franz is a follower of NIAM or ORM, and that is a reference to, this is an old reference, NIAM, I had to look it up, for uh, Nijin's Information Analysis Methodology, but we would know it as ORM, or Object Role Modeling. Right. Right? Different than relational modeling. Yes. Relational modeling, you know, we talk about the, the ORM Smackdown, totally different topic. This yep. is about database modeling. Yep. In a previous life, I used InfoModeler, which eventually got sucked into Visio, and then got pretty much abandoned by Microsoft. This would be a great future topic on DNR. The abandonment of Visio is a great future topic. Yeah, you know, actually, abandonment of several things we could talk about on DNR. We should get some Microsoft people on it. Uh, whatever happened to or where are they now? Show. Where are they now? Microsoft you know? Bob, you mean? Well, everybody knows where that is. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, where's Visio? Where's you know, uh, on my list is to talk about the fact that they finally have announced the end of Fox Pro. Yeah. So, yep. you know, that, that, I think you, you got a, you got an idea there. Might be uh, you know, we should about. have a, that could be another SmackDown show. We could have the Fox Pro community on one side and Microsoft on the other. Oh boy. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Okay. Now you, your idea of fun is different from mine, Carl. <laughs> I don't know. I think the Fox people think it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me finish off the email here. Finally, I've hooked several other developers to your show and set up a regular Friday DNR TV brown bag lunch. Excellent. Thanks again for a great show and all you've done for the .NET community. Hopefully, I've sucked up enough to earn a DNR mug. You got it. All the best, Thomas Morgan. You got it, Thomas. 
<laughs> well, you know, more and more people are getting together on Fridays or whatever and watching DNR TV. Uh, I think it's a great idea. And if I was in in a on a team like that, I would be the, I would be doing it too. Why not? It's free and it's good. So let's uh, kick off the announcement slash Code Camp music here. And we'll announce a couple of Code Camps. First one, in Raleigh, North Carolina, June 23rd. This is the Raleigh Code Camp. You can read about it at shrinkster.com slash P-E-B. And in Reading, United Kingdom, developer, developer, developer on June 30th. And you can read about that at shrinkster.com slash P-8-0. In Adelaide, Australia, July 7th and 8th, the uh, there's a code camp going on there. What's the name of that one, Richard? Well, the only name I've seen so far is Code Camp SA. Not terribly inventive. Okay, well, but I've only got a news posting so far, so I don't know what they're really going to call it. Well, you can read about that so far at shrinkster.com/pkh. And Greg Brill is still looking for a few good people down in New York City. If you want to spend a year in New York with some exciting people doing creative work uh, and live rent free in Manhattan for a year. Go to shrinkster.com slash KH6. All right, well, let's bring on our friend Scott Stanfield. Scott is the uh, CEO of Vertigo Software Incorporated, a Microsoft Gold Partner specializing in building unique .NET applications. Unique, I think, is the key word here. Scott is a proud member of the MSDN Regional Director community covering Silicon Valley and also participates in the Microsoft.NET Partner Architect Council. His company built the Windows DNA Rosetta Stone sample application, Fitch and Mather Stocks 2000, the ASP.NET Starter Kits and iBuySpy, the Nile and Pet Shop Benchmarks, Family Show, and many others. He's a frequent speaker and has delivered keynotes at Microsoft events, including TechEd, PDC, DevDays, and VBits. Scott holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Welcome, Scott. Welcome back, I should say. Show 11 you, was the last time you were here. Yeah, I can't believe you guys made it this long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 235 shows later. Yeah. Man, I- I've got some catching up to do. But uh, you were a good guest then. I, you know, the the thing I remember most from our conversation in show 11, and believe me, I, ha- I don't listen to it every day, because. but the thing that stuck out was at one point we were talking about technology and how you know, outsourcing and all this stuff. And I said something like, you know, sooner or later, software developer is going to be the only job left. And you said, yeah, that and battery maker. (laughs) (laughs) Battery slaves. You know, it's even, it's even gotten worse since then, Carl. My life is consumed by uh, power adapters and batteries. Power adapters suck. I have a sprint little cell mode and it plugs in via USB. And guess what? It has a battery. Everything oh. in my life is either has an adapter. I wish I could give you a picture of my desk as I'm scanning it right now. It is full of adapters and batteries and doohickeys. Now, I have to admit, I pretty much have this company to feed my techno habit, yeah. which is pretty severe. But um, it's it's really my own fault. But yeah. I know the feeling. Yeah. More important is, I guess, maybe the predictions of the thinking about software in general um, and what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, we were talking. We were talking a long time ago, and we 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 have conversations occasionally. We run into each other at Tech Ed and things like that. But the thing I liked about Vertigo is you guys, and in, in, you said it in the bio, unique 
uh, applications is what you guys do. You guys are always doing innovative stuff. And I think part of that is because of your art sense. I mean, you truly have, um, you know, a a sense of aesthetic that uh, a lot of geeks don't have. I I don't know where that comes from. Um, I have a, in addition to the comp side background, I have a music background. So maybe it came from there. And, you know, playing in a high school band was, was always fun. So I have kind of a music background. But uh, you know what? I, actually, no. I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. And it stems from an experience I had in 1993. I was working at the time for Pixar. And I had, believe it or not, a dual 486 box. Ooh. And wow. Some, some beast from NEC. And I remember it had this nasty habit of not booting because the drives would stick or something. And I remember I would keep a heavy ski boot next to my computer and give it a whack in the morning. So for the first time, I, I literally booted a computer, which, which gave me a lot of enjoyment. But I remember at the time, we had engaged with Microsoft. I think we're kind of like an early MSDN. And I had this piece of software called Publisher, Publisher 1.0, which I'd never used before. And I remember my wife telling me she needed a um, like a flyer printed out for a baby shower or something or garage sale. And so for the first time ever, I was actually placed in the shoes of a user, what we call users, right? what they call themselves, just regular people, not geeks. Figure out how to print out an invitation using this software. Exactly. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to be a very difficult, cumbersome experience. And it did exactly what I needed it to do, no more and no less. I remember being so impressed that I you know, only spent like one minute. You know, I'd installed the software, which back then was probably off of floppies, but it didn't, didn't take very long. And what I needed to do perfectly matched the scenario that they had coded in their first version of the app. Yeah. And I was able to get home on time. And what's more important is I looked good for my wife. I finally actually delivered on <laughs> this stuff that we normally build, but to actually be in their shoes to use it, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, we're usually that. associated with problems with a computer. This damn computer! It's <laughs> exactly. your fault! You brought this thing! Why couldn't I use my old computer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, I, honestly, these problems manifest themselves in the living room with the myriad of remotes. And This right. time it's going to be different, honey. We'll have everything running through this new Ankyo receiver. Yeah, last time I IM'd my wife when she was having a problem with the computer, it nearly ended up in the front yard through the bay window. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is rare for us programmers to, to take take a step and see what it looks like from, from their perspective. And that was yeah. my first experience, and it was something that didn't really change me right then, but it, it got me thinking down along the lines of uh, where other people have since gone and some of the luminaries in that field and the, the people that I follow and read, um, Jakob Nielsen, I'm looking at myself, uh, Donald Norman, um, Edward Tufte, certainly his series has, has been very influential mm. in my life. Um, and um, just just thinking about how, what I call it, it's the, it's the last two feet. You often hear about the last mile. <laughs> the last and mile, yeah. Yeah, this is the last two feet. It's, it's the space you have between your brain and the screen <laughs> where things really happen. And because the majority of software we write are for people. Now, granted, they may not be your, your mother. They could be some... Or maybe your mother is some high-powered exec at... You know, well, she is a person, so that portal. could yeah, be representative. Yeah. But it's just, they, they, the people that use our software come to the table with a set of life experiences and expectations of what this thing should do. They probably don't want to futz around with endless options and installation configuration settings. They just want to get something done and move on to the next problem. Right. And, and that's the way I look at it. So ever since I put those lens on, that lens on, I encounter, you know, I'm completely sickened by the state of 
web UI and, frankly, most Windows UI. And occasionally you, you find some things that are amazing. Here's an ex- a recent example of a piece of software I love, Beyond Compare. Okay? Beyond Compare is a, is a file differencing program. Um, I found it through Jeff's blog. I think he found it through Hanselman's Tools blog or something. But I, through my professional career as programmer, um, I've used a lot of file differencing programs. And you guys know, it's like you've got a file, two files. They're each 100 lines long, and a couple right. lines, they're, they're different. How do you visually display that? That's a, that's a, that's a, a visual display challenge. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do it. I think Beyond Compare was the first one that really nailed it for me. And it had to do with the way they, they scroll the pages side by side, and they put a little equal sign. or something with, There's something subtle. I only used it once. But there's something subtle about the way they use color and the way they, they provide this kind of high-level roadmap or visualization of the file and where the changes are. Hmm. I was like, finally, someone has figured that out, which is great. I think like in the world of mapping software, Google Maps has figured it out. Virtual yeah. Earth, not even close. Just in terms of basic usability. And I talk about things like Virtual Earth, Microsoft's local live. Is it live.local.com or local.live.com? Yeah, or is it live.com? No, I think live. it's live. Yeah. It is live. It's live. Okay. Because I've never actually heard it pronounced. So anyway, I remember when they launched their um, mapping Virtual Earth, kind of Google Maps competitor thing. Um, we sent the email around here, and somebody found it, and we sent it at, around at work, and I could not get the darn thing to work. You know, of course, the first thing, when you're in a mapping piece of software, and we all remember when we, either through TerraServer or some early mapping software, what do you do? You look up your address. You look up your house. Oh, yeah, that's the so, rule. Yeah, you have to. It's like you want to see yourself. I mean, ultimately, we use technology to, to, as, as a means to boost our egos and, and see what the world is saying about us and, and what pictures they have of us. Hence, you know, Facebook and YouTube and things like that. Right. So I punch in my address, doesn't come up. I'm like, huh, do I use commas? So I took the commas out, nothing comes up. I'm like, well, maybe I have to strip out the word street or spell the word boulevard correctly. Still nothing. And I gave up. And I walked around, I think I went to go get a cup of coffee, and this was definitely creating a buzz in our office. And two other engineers that I passed by couldn't get it to work either. It wasn't until later that day I realized I had typed my address in the wrong box. Oh, wow. boxes. How can there be a wrong box? Exactly. I should apparently have put it in the second box because the first box was meant for business names. So I think if I had typed the word Vertigo Software, it would have come up to me. But no, I had to to think. The stupid piece of software made me think, and I did not think, and I guessed wrong, and I felt stupid. Don't make me think. Yeah, well, that's that's probably the other book I should mention is Don't Make Me Think by Krug. Fantastic book. Very approachable. In fact, I think that that's a book your listeners, if they're programmers, should start with. It's a yeah. fantastic book. And um, after that, read Scott McCloud's book on understanding comics. Just has nothing to do with software, but it's a, <laughs> a fascinating book on a, on a topic that we grew up with, but we probably never really thought about as a means to telling a story and how, mm. how challenging the world of comic space is. Mm. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. So it made me think I felt stupid. And I thought, how could we screw up something as simple as two text boxes versus one? And when I go to Google Maps and it works, it turns out they put the smarts on the back end. They let the computer – and honestly, guys, how long would it take for us to write a, a little bit of code that could distinguish between a company name versus an address? Really? Like, if you don't just... distinguish, try one. If it doesn't work, try the other. Yeah, right. exactly. So uh, that's when I started thinking, geez, even something as simple as two tax boxes screws up. Let me give you another example yeah. of, of, of UI, okay? And this is something – this is another early UI or user – interface experience I had, but it wasn't with a computer, it was with a bottle. And it was a bottle of uh, contact cleaning solution in saline. 
So I used to wear contacts before I had radial keratotomy surgery, which is which is kind of the the Russian crazy precursor to LASIK. Um, Yikes! Did, did you guys ever wear contacts? No, I, I wear glasses, but I don't use contacts, and I have no desire for laser surgery. I don't and know. I, I, that would take away my uh, chubby Harry Potter look. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's an image thing. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, the way you you clean contacts back in the eighties, maybe you do it now. I don't know. There's a company called Aosep that sold this solution, and you. Um, you put, imagine putting a little contact in your hand. You drip a little bit of um, soap on it and rub it with your finger and drop it in a solution. It's a solution of um, hydrogen peroxide. And there is a catalyst, a platinum-laden catalyst, hmm. that overnight converts that solution into water and oxygen, I believe. It's, it's a pretty cool reaction. So in the morning, what you do, you take it out of this caustic solution and rinse it with saline to get any extra stuff off. And saline just being salty water, it's your tears, then you put it in your eye. Now, the bottles in the morning, when you don't have your contacts in, are a bit blurry. And they're the same size. Hmm. And they have the so same tops. They have the same tops. I rinsed that contact one time, not with saline, but with hydrogen peroxide. Oh, no, Also nice. known as bleach. Hmm. And as it turns out, putting bleach on a mucous membrane like your eye is a very bad thing to do. That, that's got to hurt. Well, and it also makes the eye immediately closed so you cannot get it out. Absolutely. Your eye <laughs> clenches and you have to wrench it free and I had to stick my head underwater. Now, as it turns out later, I don't know, five or six years later, I started seeing that contact solution with a very subtle change. RGB FF0000. They made the cap red. <laughs> That's all they had to do was make the cap red. I can be, my vision was 2400. I can distinguish between two bottles where one has a red cap. Yeah. Again, so a very painful personal emotional experience I had with something that could have been alleviated with just a simple color. So two text boxes versus one, red color versus no color. Right. I got a couple of other examples. I've redesigned my car stereo that Mercedes puts in for their satellite radio. Horrible UI. Every four minutes, I look over to see who the artist is, and it doesn't show us. I have to push a button twice. One to see the title, one to see the artist's name, and then most of the time, my little 20-character display does not display at all. It's just all right. dot, dot, dot. So, I'm try- and so all the while, I'm hurtling down the, the freeway at 80 miles an hour when I should be paying attention to the road. Yeah. I've redesigned it so where you never have to do that. So, so what I'm getting at is there's little subtle things about the way we interact, and, and I think there's analogs with the world's software. Well, there's the, the Toshiba 400, M400 or the R400 or one of those Toshiba uh, uh, tablet PCs, not the one I have, but a newer one. When you when you, when it's closed, it has a little display on the outside of it. Oh yeah, yeah. That uh, tells you things like battery life and uh, relevant emails that pop up. Mm-hmm. You see the subjects, and and you can actually get an idea of what's going on. But this is like as it's snoozing, you know. Yes. When it's That's not brilliant. working. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great, and it, but you know what that is? Just another insipid way for. For the human race to become simply battery chargers. It's just another way for them to tell us to feed them. Have you no. read Devices of the Soul? No. Devices of the Soul? Devices of the Soul by Stephen Talbot. We're going we're gonna to get him on the show because this is a really jarring book. Um, it's about huh? just how uh, – the basic thesis of the book is that by, by 
bringing ourselves down to the level of the computer, we begin to think that the ultimate in smarts would be if we thought like the computer and if we were the computer. And so it just happens hmm. naturally that when we teach people, we consider it like a transfer of data from one database to another without any mm-hmm. real human consideration. And so we sort of lose our own uh, our faith in our own transformative abilities. What's the name of the book? Uh, Devices of the Soul. Devices. So it's sort of, of like trying to get yourself back wow. after being wow. deviced to death. Well, that's interesting. I, I talk about, look, mostly what we do, these, these six million professional developers around the world in the Microsoft space, I would venture to say 80, maybe 90% of us create CRUD applications. Right. Create, read, update, delete. Maybe yep. we'll throw on paging and sorting if you're lucky, Data or we browsers. have an administrative user interface, and we'll have usernames and passwords, and maybe some reporting, and then we do it all again. It's the same thing. Instead of feeding a battery, right. we're stooping to the level of a row in a database. And right. I, believe me, I love relational databases. I love systems like that. But in order for me, right now as a CEO, I make these high-level decisions based on imperfect information, and it doesn't exactly match the kind of information we can pull out of our CRM system or our, mm. our accounting system. I need to see all that information in a way that's malleable and, and, and in a way that I can make decisions. I, I call it the 10-foot interface. Earlier, we had the 2-foot interface. I want the 10-foot executive experience, which to right. me is every morning I should be able to walk by a 40-inch plasma from 10 feet away and see everything about the state of the company, both current state, future projected state, in the last six months at a glance. Right. Uh, and, and, and be able to make decisions. And it's, you know, it's, it's like the dashboard experience, but I don't yeah. want to interact with it. I just want to see it. Right. Um, and it, I think maybe it's okay to tweak it a little bit, but we're actually really experimenting with that because there's, there's all the data is there, but if we, if we display it in a way to where I can just, if, if, if I found that I could stand there in front of the screen for two minutes and just be absorbed in that information. Right. Not be overwhelmed right and, mm-hmm. and not be overwhelmed and not be, you know, Freaked out and not have to wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Tufty has um, uh, Edward Tufty. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He has a series of books. He's um, visual explanations and visioning information, visual display of quantitative information, etc. He does a lot of work of of understanding how complex ideas and concepts and thoughts get expressed on paper. He's he's kind of talking about what we do, but from a paper perspective, and and how over the years these incredible maps of of infra or different displays of information have allowed people to understand things. And one of his most famous examples is the um, Napoleon's march on Moscow and then subsequent retreat. And it's, it's a beautiful diagram. Oh, yes, it's a graph. I remember seeing this. Yes, yes. And it's actually it's difficult to describe, especially visually, because it is truly meant to be something that you, you feast with, with your eyes. And, and not only that, it's something that you can spend 10 minutes with. It's not something you just glance at and look away. As it turns out, paper carries a tremendous amount of information per square inch in terms of DPI. You can be very, very detailed, very precise. And then what this guy did, um, I'm actually trying to flip through my book to find the the name, but what this artist did, and this was probably back in the 1800s. The artist was Charles Joseph Menard. You are human Google. He is. On Napoleon's March to Moscow, 1812. Yes, yes. I looked it up. Okay. okay. Well, well, what's interesting is that... Yeah, identify one plane, nobody leaves you alone. (laughs) 
Here I am. I'm actually trying to flip through the book, and you have the actual information right there. Yeah. It's um, well, Scott's going on about paper. Richard just Googled it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stupid paper. Well. I don't really have a All right, next for that. topic. <laughs> uh, you can't hate paper. The battery life on it's awesome. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. It's total random access as well, right? Well, it just has this depth of information that you, you can you can derive or make some kind of judgment based on the way the data is displayed that you would not be able to in a you know, a traditional access application, <laughs> you know, because what, what he's really trying to, to demonstrate is the horrors of war. Sure. And you see how many people he left on the march and how few people returned. It was something like yeah, a yeah. million left and 10,000 came back. But you could see graphically where these, these, these occurrences happened. You could tell there are a tremendous amount of people lost, uh, were lost due to a famine because they were in the middle of a retreat. Some people um, uh, fled the war. And so there's a lot of dense information. And as a business user, a business owner, I feel like I have a lot of data out there, and I want to derive some interesting information from it. So, Scott, do you have kids? I do. You know, one thing that I've really enjoyed with my kids are these books called iSpy. Oh, yeah. And software. So oh, the software itself? Well, they have software, which is essentially an extension of the book. But, you know, the, yes. the iSpy books where they take these great photographs of lots of detailed Mm-hmm. things and then they they make up a little poem about what they see and then you sit there and try to find the things in the picture and there's so much information in the picture that They're sometimes beautiful. it yeah the pictures are beautiful and sometimes it takes you 10 15 minutes to find mm-hmm. to find a clothespin or a, a paper clip or or whatever the, the software itself is very good. They did more than just simply say, take the same picture and display it on the screen. I I've seen the software and it's very good. Um, yeah. I think that's a good example of something that's, you know, can actually, instead of spending that, I think most people in this recent Nielsen study, they spend about 35 seconds on a site's homepage, mm-hmm. and then maybe up to 50 seconds on average with any page behind the scenes. Um, but imagine spending, you know, 15 minutes on a page in a book. Right. It's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. yeah you, you say, hey, boy, that's a thin book. We're going to be done with this pretty soon. It know? takes a while. Yeah. It's good. I, I, you know, the funny thing is the first time I saw the software was at the Apple Store. Wow. Um, I brought my son to the Apple Store. I wanted to see um, a demonstration by this company called Propellerhead from Sweden. Sure. And they make a piece of an incredible software that runs on the Windows and Mac called Reason. And it's actually, it's, it's, I like to show it to people as a piece of software that you just could not do on the web. Right. You know, because you know, we're always like, when do we use Windows versus web? And, and this is a good example. It's, it's basically a software studio or rack. In a, Music. In, in software, yeah, it's fantastic. So I'm there in the little studio at the, the, the Apple Store, um, downtown San Francisco, and he's sitting there playing on the Mac, and he's playing with that little iSpy thing, and he loves it. It was very engaging. Now, I recently bought, I finally broke down and bought a MacBook Pro. Now, I have worked for two of three, You're two out of three of jobs as companies. I've worked for Pixar and I've worked for Next, yet I've always resisted. I grew up an Atari 800 guy, yeah. an Atari ST, and I've always resisted the Apple and Commodore folks. And so for me to actually buy the Mac, I had to... Eh, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I've, already, I've already purchased 60 iPods, literally about 50 for my company, and... Um, Video iPods and the Nano and the Pico and the Tetra, whatever they're called. And I've got, I think, all, all every kind of iPod imaginable. But yeah, I mean, we're in the podcasting business, so I have to get those things. My kids love oh. me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know what I actually think? Let's go back, uh, put this on pause. For, no, don't I literally pause. My, my train of thought, I'm going to try right. to pause it. Put it on the stack. Of all the iPods, you know which one I think is the best? Which one? Think of, 
the shuffle. Really? The yeah. Potato chip. I love it. I love it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it has a physical on-off button. Yes. Okay. Number two, it's always where you need it, which is clipped to your shirt. It's not not sitting on a, a flat surface on your table when you stand up and you'll drop on the floor. It's not deep in your pocket where you need to pause it because somebody's trying to talk to you. It's exactly where you need it. And it's lightweight. And, oh, look, it's got a built-in clip on it. So it's very easy to get to. And as it turns out, I don't really need to go and select an album to listen to. Now, I may want to have a shuffle with a selection of workout um, music for treadmill or whatever, which works great, by the way. Or I might have a selection for more relaxed music. You know, it's not a video iPod, sure. Yeah, I'm not going to watch The Office on it. And it's, it's not, it, it does not have every single album I've ever owned. But in terms of just immediate use and ease of use and gratification of use, turns out you don't need the screen. I was really surprised. Well, you know what you do is you just get a bunch of them and put different genres of music on each one and just pick the one you want. You know, color coded, disposable. They are practically, you know, they come with barbecue sauce. What I like to say, (laughs) sweet and sour and barbecue. I thought that was the Windows Vista Smoky Bacon Edition. Oh, Oh, very nice. So, are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates: Rad controls for ASP.NET, Rad controls for WinForms the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of Rad Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting, The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. I've always carried really small, solid-state MP3 players for working out uh-huh. as well. It, it, not necessarily the, the iPod Shuffle, but there's been a variety of them out there. But they're, they tend to be Korean and a little fiddly, yeah. but they uh, they're little. Yeah, yeah, they are little. That's, that's the biggest thing. But actually, you know what? It's funny. My son won't hear this broadcast, but it's his um, 10th birthday on Saturday. Oh. And I am holding wow. an orange iPod Shuffle in my hands that I'm supposed to charge and loaded up with songs that um, we're going to prepare. It's orange because he's a Giants fan, you know? Right. Makes sense. But um, he loves it. It's easy to use, and, you know, I, I can stick 200 songs on it. it but it's, it's the whole, the entire package. I mean, there's one thing that, that Apple does well, or there's several, but one thing is the entire out-of-box experience, the OBE. In fact, yeah. it used to be when we got our first iPods and our first iPod, what is this thing on iMac, I guess, we would get everybody around, get a few people around, and, ex- and share the out-of-box experience. We would open the box together and take out the packaging, and everything has such a high degree of polish. It Style. felt like, 
you know the way Japanese culture really reveres and values the paper yeah. and the experience of the folding and the paper. Yep. It sounds silly, right? No, no, it's but, the, the tea the tea ceremony. I mean, you know, it's yes. the it's the it's the the the, the process. I yeah. guess when you pay an extra thirty or forty percent over what you'd have to spend for an equivalent system on a PC, you expect these little fine polishes, but they're there. You know, the first thing I show off on my MacBook now—that's a MacBook Pro, I think. The first thing I show is the magnetic power cl- uh, latch. Have you mm. seen this thing? Yeah, no pulling your laptop off the desk by tripping yes. over the power cord. The cord just exactly. pops out. Which is just so much wow. fun to play with. There's a very subtle but satisfying clink or tick when you get the power thing hooked up to it correctly. Totally gratuitous. I, you know, I, I really doubt that people, there was a rash of problems of people's laptops being jerked to the floor. No, but it's style. Starbucks. It's that extra it's thought that goes yes. into what will be the experience of using this. Yeah. And it pays off in spades. My nine-year-old, okay, turns 10 on Saturday. He, um, he loves this MacBook Pro partly because there are two programs that he has just fallen in love with. The first is um, PhotoBooth. PhotoBooth is, the UI metaphor is very interesting. It's like you're at um, an arcade and you have something taking your picture and a Polaroid pops out. In fact, it even looks like that. I, I, I still laugh that our best UI metaphor for digital photography is to composite it on top of a white rectangle with a little bit of of heaviness or weight at the bottom to indicate it's a Polaroid. Hmm. So they follow the same UI metaphor and even slides out of the top of the window, but it's beautiful. But they do, because the iSight camera is built in and integrated, another hallmark of the Apple design world where everything, they control everything, and as a consequence, everything tends to work together, which may be bad if you want more of an open system. But, you know, at the end of the day, my son doesn't want to install drivers. It just it's works. It's one of those classic things where as long as it does what you want it to do, it'll do it very well. If it doesn't do what you want it to do, it's not going to do it. As it turns out, it's it's a great $3,000 accessory for my $70 iPod shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> it manages my iTunes library like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Um, well, you know, before we before we started recording, we were talking about the RD photo contest Mm-hmm. The regional director photo contest, and and Richard and I were both saying that we liked your photo submission the best. And I've actually, you have a PNG file on your site, but since we were talking, you said I wish I'd turn this into a JPEG. I actually did turn it into a JPEG and shrinksterize it at shrinkster dot com slash p nine five p is in Paul nine five shrinkster dot com slash Yep. Just like tinyurl, only running under .net. Right. Shrinkster.com slash p95, papa95. Right. And what I uh, like about this huh. is there's several things going on here that we talked about and that I like about it. The composition is just wonderful, first of all. Thank the you. lighting is um, unbelievable. And how you got this, you know, let's look through my body thing happen. Um, <laughs> I figured it well, out immediately. I, th- I figured you took two shots. One with you in it and one without you in it. And uh, you cut out the screen area. And then you also took a picture of your screen on a white background and sort of composited that over. Mm-hmm. That's, Carl, a lot of people think that. As it turns out, this Toshiba is a special model with extra power. And I had glass cranked way up <laughs> to the point of extreme transparency. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, these... There were two photos, one, and this was on a tripod, and my associate, Mike Hanley, 
Um, he's the one taking the photo. This is one of probably a hundred photos we took that day. We should describe the, the photo right. for those who aren't at the Shrinkster site. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll describe. I'm, I'm standing in. Fr- this was for a, a contest we did as regional directors, and the idea was to take a picture of you holding a laptop running Vista with some famous landmark in the background, and probably the most famous or most photographed landmark is the Golden Gate Bridge. And because we're out of San Francisco, it was trivial for me to get up to the Marin Headlands and stand um, with the bridge in my background and wait for just the right shot. Um, and I'm holding the laptop in front of my chest, but you can almost see through it and see the cars on the bridge. The, the yeah. wallpaper of the laptop is the bridge as if you weren't there. Right? That's correct. Yeah. So but it's you're like right. You're the way we did him. it, I took a picture of me just simply holding the laptop and then jumped out of the frame and Mike snapped the picture again. The idea was to get roughly the same kind of cars on the bridge and the same, uh, the same composition. And then I came back with Photoshop and cut out the screen and did some um, multiplication. I forgot the exact filter I used to composite the layers together. But what's really interesting is in the background, coincidentally, was this airplane. And it's an unusual airplane. And right before we started recording this, this broadcast, Richard identified it from no more than 10 by 20 pixels. Richard, what is this airplane? It's a PBY Catalina. But I just pulled up the picture, and you were saying there was this airplane, so I wanted to see what the airplane was. And then when I saw it, I went, oh, that's a PBY Catalina. Of course. So I was of like, course. how do you know that? I've been trying to find out the name of that plane for about a year. And I knew it was an unusual plane because they were um, – it was that following weekend, they were do- – uh, the Fleet Week was in town. So the Navy right. was here with the Blue Angels and all that. And I knew they were hmm. flying some special planes around. So I'm gratified to learn that you were able to Yeah, they, they were anti-submarine aircraft in World War II, and they were used for search and rescue and maritime patrols and things like that. Now I think they put out fires. So uh, it, you might not yeah. know this about Richard, but he studied to be an air traffic controller, and and he did abnormally well on the exam. Most people <laughs> fail. <laughs> And uh, and then and they wanted him so badly to be an aircraft traffic controller, and then he said, "Eh, nah, <laughs> I don't want to do that for a living." Right? <laughs> well, the problem was up in Canada to be an air traffic controller, you would be a federal civil servant. Yeah, and I just couldn't handle that. They have planes in Canada. Uh, they do. <laughs> they have skis on them. It's really interesting. <laughs> uh, I grew up as an Air Force brat. So I, I spent most of my time around C-5s, which is an amazing... Yeah, that's why you wouldn't recognize it's a Navy plane. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fun, fun photo. And it's... I don't know how we got down this topic, but... Well, it's just, you know, we started talking about the aesthetic quality, uh, you know, that separates you, I think, from a lot of other nerds. And, um, you know, I you know I, I sort of fall into that category myself, being a musician and, yeah. and you know, and interested in art and all that. And so, recording audio. Yeah, recording. And video is another thing that you do very well. You you were the guy behind the Grok Talks. Yes, groktalk.com. That was uh, my first attempt at doing a lot of video work. And it's actually six hours of content. And as it turns out, filming six hours of content is difficult. But editing six hours of content is even more difficult. Well, and especially when they're broken up into 15 or five-minute yeah, five five segments. Chunks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was for... Um, that was for TechEd a couple years back, and we have on here for your, for your listeners, they can go and see probably a lot of people that have been on your show, and, and sure. Carl, your video's in here. Yep, and I think um, Richard did one too. Yep. There is a, for your listeners, I'll tell you, there is a, an Easter egg in here. Uh, At com. Yeah, hold on, websites. In fact, Richard, you're in here too. Oh, the, um, the outtakes. Yes, there's an outtake oh, right. video. 
Now, the, I did the outtakes um, with music. Let me make sure this is the right one, and I'll give your listeners the URL. Hold on. And while you're, find, while you're finding that, we've referenced Billy Hollis's talk before, and I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, Billy, his whole presentation there? His presentation was on being a code addict, and you oh, felt yeah. like you were at an AA meeting. He's like, about yeah. all these people addicted to code. That's where he earned the nickname Reverend Billy. Oh, that is too funny. <laughs> well, on the root of that folder, grocktalk.com, yeah. there's some outtakes. Now, I never secured the rights to this song, but... In this age of, um, well, frankly, most people don't care about copyrights anymore. Yeah. I'm just, I'll just give it out there. So under grocktalk.com slash outtakes.wmv, that is the outtake video with music to Franz Ferdinand. And the first person on there is actually Billy. It's, it's yeah. amazing. So I'll, I'll tweak the grocktalk.com. Well, these were great. And, and you know what was good about them is you get, what was it, 10 minutes, right? Ten minutes to 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 cover a topic and to show something that you're interested in, show something new, fun, interesting, whatever it was. But you only mm-hmm. get ten minutes. And what I liked about it was your ability to go back and forth between, you know, here's a person, a talking head, and the screen. And yeah. you had a camera on the person, and you were also recording the screen. And I know we've talked about this by email. Uh, in DNR TV, we choose to just do the screen. You and that know. makes sense because you're kind of recording these things remotely. You're right. Right. Well, it, but but, the, the but what's difficult about it is those are two different codecs. You have yeah. the TechSmith codec or whatever for the screen font, and uh, uh, otherwise it, you can't read the fonts if you have any kind of like you know regular standard video compression. You're right. You're right. Well, we were you know we had a plasma screen in the background and we used that just to have something to look at, and occasionally we would zoom in on it just to get a different look. But you're right. We were using Camtasia at the same time. Um, to record the screen for for the RD, and um, we used I forgot the, all the codec settings, but there's a making of video where I talk about how we pulled it off. But it's something now. Here's the thing: RDs as a whole tend to be um, not only is their content interesting, but sometimes their delivery and their personalities are interesting. Yeah. And I think a presenter in general needs to give a bit of themselves and their view and their opinion about what they're talking about. Otherwise, I can just read the manual, or I could just read some text. If I'm going to watch somebody give a presentation, I want to get a little bit more of a sense of their passion about right. some, some, some editorial, editorializing or context that I can then take away and becomes part of my permanent memory about some technology. And it was fascinating to do, and I got, it was a great opportunity for me to meet all these RDs from around the world and spend time with them. And, Carl, you do an amazing impression of Beaker. Oh, in yeah. that outtake video, <laughs> and that is, your your whole stint, your whole shtick is in there. And Richard, to this day, I'll, when your laptop froze, you you utter something kind of kind of funny. So it's both in the outtakes. Wmv, and I'll I'll put a primary link on it. Beaker from uh, the no. Muppet Show. That was actually from a bit we did on Mondays about the Mars Opportunity rover. Yeah, you know, remember when right. it got stuck in the mud? Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, and so Dr. Bunsen Honeydew did a on-the-scene kind of, you know, that they were fixing the problem with .NET remoting technology, and that Beaker was working on it, and he couldn't figure out the config file settings <laughs> to get it to work. And that's what caused the, you know, the, to get stuck in the mud. Yeah, that so, is, well, that is, you did a very good job. You know, I now hear that in my sleep. You understand? <laughs> I spent so much time with that video and trying to get the music to line up. <laughs> but it's on grocktalk.com. If, if 
folks want to see both Richard and, and Carl. But you fun. did do a fairly editive intensive style of uh, video too. Yes, with all those cuts back and forth between yeah. the head and the and the screen and so forth. It really seemed to me like a worst case scenario for editing. Sure. Well, we grew up on MTV, right? And we're now trying to take an hour and fifteen minutes worth of content in a in a, a typical look. I go to these. I go to Tech and I go to PDC, and I go to all this other stuff. I have a very hard time sitting and focusing in a conference. Uh, in, in it, this, some people learn great in that way, but I have a hard time sitting and focusing for. It's more of long. an ADD thing for you, isn't it? I think it is. I think <laughs> okay. it is. What I recommend people do is to play back these videos in double speed. It's very, it's, I'm totally serious. It's very feasible to do. Double is tough. 1.4 to 1.6x speed up is perfect. And I have a program called Sony Vegas, which has a shuttle control. Yep, right. And it allows you to set your playback. Yeah, you, it's fantastic. In fact, it was Vegas that I used to do these uh, videos. In fact, I still use Vegas to edit my high def videos. In fact, that vertigo.com. There's something called Family Show, which we can talk about, but there's a, there's a high-def video that we shot. Um, although I'm not using the new Silverlight Codex yet, they will be up there soon. I just have to re-render um, and get the bits posted. Now, I just bought a uh, – we should talk high-def offline because I just bought a high-def camera too. Mm-hmm. And I use Sony um, just to do it uncompressed, to, to make an right. uncompressed video. Man, that's so big that oh my gosh, no huge. machines in the world no. can play them. I mean, my, my quad processor machine – you right. know, my big one can play it, mm-hmm. but, you know, anything anything else can't. Well, there's, you know, it, it's interesting you said we should talk about this offline. I do think that um, the world of video, what's really fascinating, so I, I went to a film class in, in Burbank to learn how to use this new Panasonic HVX200 camera. And the world of high def just got really inexpensive. It went from about a twenty-five yep. to hundred thousand dollar proposition down to five grand, and that's yep, how much right. this camera cost. But there's one other bit that's very interesting, and that is it now records to disc. Well, it doesn't record disc; it records to SD chips. Right. So instead of recording your high def content like the Sony camera does to a, a, a tape, it records it to a random access media, which is actually it's a PC card, or PCMCA card with four SD chips set up in a RAID array. And it turns out you can have two of those in there and it'll record to one of them. And when it's full, it'll flash and you can pop it out, dump it off to a laptop, and it'll seamlessly fail over to the next card and start recording. And then when you put the empty one back in, it keeps going. Now, that workflow is very familiar to people in the film world where they deal with either 400 or 1,000-foot rolls of 16 or 16-millimeter film. Right. So that process is, is very common. Now what's going to happen is at the end of this year, they're going to have 32 gig cards, which means we'll be able to record on 64 gigs, which is about three to four hours of high-def content. Is that SD or CF? Uh, they're SD chips, but they're jammed inside of, of a PC card. Oh, okay. So if you were to pop open the top, you'd see four of them in there. Right. So a 32 gig card divided by four. Now, for another very- grand, you can get a, a, hard, a, a proper hard disk. Yeah, that, but you uh, need to power it. So right. Now you have another device that you right. have to, again, going back to the to the slaves to 110, right. to DC converters. Yeah. Um, it's, it's another thing that on location that you have to haul around in power. Now, the reason why I think this world is going to become more interesting is that, again, the price of high def is coming down, and the uh, people have more and more these, these high def TV sets that they're still watching 4.3 standard def signals on, which drives me nuts. And worse, they're stretched anamorphically to fit the screen. So it's right. Like, 
In fact, I read some stats saying only half the folks that have these sets even know that they're not getting a high-def signal. Now they're just getting a wider picture. Let's talk silver. And by the way, the HVR1VU is the camera that I have, which okay. I think is one step below yours. That's the – is it Sony or Panasonic? It's Sony. Okay. Yeah, the Panasonic one. Well, he, here's the thing. This is where the nice tie into Silverlight is, okay? So you now have these enormous files. They, they are big. And what we do, we dump them to a MaxTor um, external USB slash FireWire 800 drive. Mm-hmm. We dump them to that, and they, they, it's 1.5 terabytes of space Yeah, for 400 500 bucks. In fact, Best Buy mispriced them online, so we bought a couple, which is kind of convenient. So I've got a couple of these drives. <laughs> hey, you got to take advantage of it, man. Yeah, yeah. man, bestbuy.com. <laughs> so we, yeah, I know. Going there right now. Store 1.5. <laughs> um, so we bought a couple of those, and then you bring them in, you drag and drop them onto the timeline in Sony Vegas, and you render them. Uh, and I'm actually streaming and doing the editing over USB 2.0, and it's a perfectly reasonable experience. You know, you need a plug-in from a company called Raylight, but you're basically, you film, you dump it from the from the from the. Uh, actually, if you've got a if you got a PC running Vegas, you simply take the card out of the back of the laptop, yeah. stick it in your PC card slot, drag the file onto your timeline, and you're done. Yep. You now render as I don't know if you can do it yet, but I just rendered as kind of an intermediate HD format, mm-hmm. and then compress it using the Silverlight or the Microsoft's new Expression Media Encoder, which you can get at the Expression Family site. So they have an Expression Media Encoder which allows you to choose between one and maybe you know, about 10 different ways to stream out your content in high def. Now, it's going to be compressed. You know, the best experience is still running over an intranet. But we, we now have about an hour's worth of high def content that we filmed at Vertigo. Kind of, you know, Grok Talks on steroids. We've done a lot more here at Vertigo that are waiting for, for us to edit them and stream them out of Silverlight. And that's that's like the other world of, of silver lights, you know, the big. Yeah, and that's what I wanted. To, yeah, that's yeah. what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, because in, in specifically about formats. Now, you know, when I think of high def, I have a nice, you know, 50 some odd inch plasma TV at my house. And, mm-hmm. you know, Discovery Channel is like the holy grail. And there's a few yes. public, uh, public TV and HBO has their own and everything. But, um, but, you know, that quality is really good. And when you, when you're compressing that, you know what? Can you get that same quality with compressed? And and first of all, I'm thinking 1080p, and I believe Silverlight doesn't go that high yet. That's does correct. It? Yeah, it does yeah. not. Um, I think we're limited to 720p. Now, when I say limited, it's still an amazing experience. Still an amazing experience. Just yeah. a smaller picture. I, I would posit that you would be hard pressed to tell the difference between 1080p and and 720p on that 50. What you said, 50 inch. If you're viewing yeah, it, yeah, it's 48 feet. Your eye probably can't discern, discern the difference. Now, now um, so let me ask you this: If you, my camera only takes 1080, so it doesn't take in 720. Does it only do 1080i? It does 1080i, and it does 1080p at 24 frames a second. Ah, it does beautiful. 1080i at 60 frames a second. Can you do 720p at 24? frames I cannot per do 720p, but it, that's, can so you transcode that? Yes, you can. Vegas will transcode fine. There's all this weird stuff called pull-downs, and you, you've got to kind of match. It, it, here's the thing. If you want a film-like quality in yeah. high def, I know this may be a little esoteric, right. but if you want go to a movie, there's a reason right. it looks like a movie, and there's three reasons. Number one, they hire cinematographers. Yeah. Number two, they know what they're doing with lighting. Number three, right. they shoot it on film. Yeah. And, and, and by definition of that, they're also shooting 24 frames per second. Right. 
um, the, in order to get a similar look, you need to shoot at 24 frames per second. Right. In 24 frames, it looks just slightly different enough that it informs our eye that we're not seeing America's Funniest Home Videos. Right. We're seeing something that there's a slight stroboscopic effect yeah. that we don't normally get. A little and flicker. Cinematographer. Yeah, it's just a little bit of flicker, but it can do amazing things. You can do amazing things with that. But you still need to know what you're doing with lighting. You need to know what you're doing with compositing a shot, et cetera. And it's the same it's with audio. It's the same with audio. I mean, yes. the, the reason that most podcasts sound like they do is because, you know, people get 10 feet away from the microphones and they crank their preamps way up to compensate for the, for the you know, gain. Mm-hmm. And then they, they have crap to start with. So, yeah. you know, and they're in loud environments and all add all that up and you get a bad experience. I'm using a Plantronics. I'm facing away from my monitor so we don't get some weird reflection. I have the mic pointed off axis so you don't get plosives when I say exactly. popcorn and pizza. Right. Syllabants and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm trying to let's see if I can try to tie this whole knot back together. There's the world of audio. There's the world of video. There's a world of programming. I do believe they are all arts. And they're, they're, there's a, cons- um, what's the word? Convergence. Not only a convergence in terms of the way we bring media into software, but they, the act of creation. Like, do you, it's rare for someone to write software that they only use themselves. They never share with anybody else. Whenever you do something cool, you call up your friends, you put them oh, on yeah. AMS to check this out. Look what I just did. Right. It's, it's an art, it's, it's kind of a, an act of geek expression. Right. And, and it can be fulfilled through several different routes or media. I think that world is finally coming to us in the, in the guise of Silverlight and WPF. Yeah. We're now no longer being shackled by the limitations of what you can do in just the classic Windows world of files, tool, you know, file menu, toolbar, right. MDI, etc. Now, some people might decry that and say, but, but how will the users know how to adapt? Well, you have to do your job first thinking about what job they're trying to solve in the first place. And it probably doesn't necessarily look like a file menu, a toolbar, a status bar, yeah. etc. It might be something completely different that we haven't thought of. And that's what we that's what we did with Family Show. So let's talk about that Family Show. What is it? Well, Family Show is a project that we were commissioned by Microsoft to build, and it's it's a kind of in the the um, the long lineage of applications that Vertigo builds to demonstrate technology. And Microsoft, when they over the past ten years, we've been in a fortunate position to be able to take what they do with for programmers either new technology like way back in the world of Windows DNA or .NET or now with WPF or ASP.NET, take the new technology and build a sample or a best practice application and show people what you can do with it. And that's what we did. We took WPF and spun our little wheel of ideas and it hit genealogy. We really, we had three or four different things that we wanted to point WPF, WPF at. And the one that won was genealogy. Now, as it turns out, genealogy is really difficult and really complicated. <laughs> yeah. You would think it's not. You think it's just, okay, you got a mother and father. How hard can that be? Right. <laughs> but when you take that out, you realize, well, how do you handle adoptions? How do you handle step-parents and, and half-sisters and half-brothers? And, and more importantly, it doesn't really work with a relational database because you don't want to have a table for every generation, you know? Oh, my it's gosh. Like... Yeah, it does not. It does not. Um we uh, internally, I'm not. Ex- we build an object structure, and it's 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 basically a. Technically, we are a, a comp sci tree. We're not a graph because we don't support consanguineal marriages, which is when you consanguineal. Well, 
consanguineal. It's when you get busy with your cousin. Oh, you've been yeah, so, you've been saving up the opportunity to use that word, haven't you? It's just a word I've learned how to pronounce, and I like it. <laughs> it's a it song by the, Steely Dan called "Cousin Dupree" that comes to mind. Oh, yes. nice. The app doesn't really play well in the South. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Now, hey, I can say that I was. I'm from. I'm from the South. I was born in Georgia. So, okay, I can what's that. your email address again, Scott? Because <laughs> I don't want him to write to me. I, my well, friends, my, some of my best friends are in the South. <laughs> <laughs> my whole family's in the South. Um, yeah. No, it's funny. We tried to do the um, the royal family, the English, the what do you call them? The English royal family tree. Yeah, the um, family Windsor. Yeah, the Windsor family tree is in there, and it's in the video. And there's a spot where. I was a Queen Victoria, I'm just blanking, but she married her cousin and had children, and we couldn't capture that relationship. So if we did, it would be a graph versus a tree, and we just didn't we didn't have time. We'll fix it in another release. Hmm. But um, yeah, consanguineal it comes from the root word of sanguine, and blood, which, which blood, yes, red, yeah. exactly. So yeah, yeah. learn something every day. Sangria. So there you go. yeah, genealogy is tough. It turns out WPF is. Once you get over this learning curve, which I believe anyone that's uh, either Cracker Jack Web or Windows programmer, it's about a two-month learning curve. Wow. It's a fun learning curve, but it's serious. It's, it's a very it's, different way of thinking about visualization, though. Ab- absolutely. Well, here's for one thing, there's no more guardrails. You know, like when you go bowling and you see kids bowling and they put up those little guardrails? So they, they always keep them out of the gutters, yeah. Keeps them out of the gutters. There's <laughs> no guardrails. There's gutters everywhere. Because not only are you learning a completely new paradigm, you are at risk of bringing bad habits from the web or Windows world into this space and not really knowing which is still okay and which is not. We didn't know how to represent a menu. Like, where do we put our menu? And do we have a toolbar? And Hmm. So it turns out you still deal with files. But what we did like is that WPF allowed us to visualize this tree in a lot of fun ways. We, we We got to a point where we knew we could pretty much build whatever we wanted to. The only limits were how much time we had to spend and the depth of how deep we wanted to go in genealogy. So it's not, I can tell you right now, it's not something we would have done in WinForms. We would huh. have not have been able to create an interesting and compelling visual experience around genealogy had it not been for the power of WPF and XAML. Wow. The Windows Presentation Foundation made the stuff awesome. But you know what? It was an incredibly fun project to work on, and I can't say that about Windows programming or web programming in general. WPF and XAML is fun. And the problem is I've got like, you know, a, a sixth of my company that's now tasted it, and that's all they want to do. Uh-oh. <laughs> but if, it, it makes sense, though, if you bring the whole aesthetic back to software. If you, if you go one step further and don't dismiss it as something that's nice to have, it's something that our users will start to demand because they're growing up with good user experiences that come from dealing with the iPod or... Gosh, even something like, frankly, YouTube is a very easy thing to use. YouTube is play huge, button by yeah. default. So our, our business community is lagging behind the Web 2.0 world, but Enterprise 2.0 is on our heels, and we have an opportunity to build business software that people love to use. But it requires developers to be cognizant of what the user is coming to the plate with. What are they bringing to the table? And what problems do they really want to solve? Do they want to wade through three layers of nested tab dialogues in Word to enable some settings? <laughs> oh, God. Probably but, not. But, but that's when I think of Web 2.0, I think more of the mashup model that it's going to be the user picking pieces to put together of things they want to use. Right. I, 
I don't know how I feel about that. The way, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent because what it does, it removes. I mean, the, the mashup I've always wanted is Zagat turned into maps. Because when I go to a new city, mm-hmm. I know I'm staying here. I want to walk within 0.2 miles, but show me the restaurants that are rating above 20. You know where I have that? I have that in my Prius, man. You can do that now? Yeah. I don't know. I okay. don't think we have Zagat ratings for, you know, Taco Bell and things like yeah. that. But yeah. I think. It's in your Prius. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that you know, that's finally starting to get to a point where, well, that's good, but, but I have to haul my Prius with me. I yeah, that's right. I yeah. ahead of time so I can reserve. Well, it's not a very open. big car. You can put it in your pack. <laughs> <laughs> not as small as my iPod shop. I, I keep one in the back of my Suburban. You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just call you guys and ask you where I should go. Yeah. Uh, go to the gas which, pump. That's where you'll be, you know. Which is actually kind of funny. I think that's the way most... Uh, all the world uses the web. It's just most of them use it by calling us. You know, right. call their, their friends that know something about the Internet and say, hey, can you like, tell me where my, a good hotel might be to stay? I've heard there's this thing called the Internet. You know, it's funny when you, you get out of your little world of when we get out of our world, you find there's still plenty of people that get along just fine not blogging. Yeah. <laughs> Plenty of people well, that get actually, yeah. literally internet free. There's still internet people free. being yeah. successful using yes. book based encyclopedias. And I, I wonder if it's because collectively, as design or as engineers, we've done a pretty poor job of articulating the value. You remember how hard it was to set up a modem and a dial-in number? Oh man, I think we did it though. AOL was, yeah, <laughs> AOL did it. They were able to just make it somewhat easy. Um, of course, there. I have a big stack of coasters still. Yes. AOL CDs that were unused. But, you know, I, I think there's so much more potential that's, that can be unlocked by paying attention to. Honestly, people don't like software. Yeah. They don't care about software. They care about the benefit that that will give them, but they don't care about the software itself. And when there's little bits of stuff that get in the way, it's like sand in the gears of their life. Here's a perfect example. When, when before we were, right before we were about to go on, I got an IM from my wife who says her dad is having computer problems. Oh. He just bought a new computer and he's trying to get his data off the old hard drive. So what does he do? He attaches the old hard drive, which boots up on his new computer and gets a blue oh screen. Oh, so man. now he doesn't know what to do. So I told him, go to Best Buy, get a USB enclosure. Put your old hard drive in that. Take that thing out of your computer, and then you can boot normally. But uh, you're kidding. And your dad can do this. Yeah, he can do that. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, and interesting knows enough to be dangerous, kind of thing. Exactly. It's always interesting to deal with the folks that feel like they know some things, but don't yeah. necessarily know how to think through all the consequences of their actions. And yeah. so often their behavior creates. A whole new level of problems. Well, the thing was that in days of yore, in the old days, he thought through the problem. And so now he feels, well, I've already thought through this problem, so I'm just going to do what I did before. Right? Wow. If our automobiles were run like that, we'd still be walking or using horses. We have a long way to go, and that's what's cool about our business. And the fact that we're always able to stay one step ahead. You know, earlier Carly said that we build unique .NET applications. Yeah. Yet we're not trying to build another – we're not trying to implement another portal. We're not trying to build yet another whatever app. We're trying to work with businesses that have something that has a problem that's not been solved yet by existing off-the-shelf software. And it's usually the thing that means the most to that company because it's their raison d'etre, whatever. I don't speak French or whatever that was. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's a box it, of raisins, basically, is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, it's a box of raisins. It's the reason for being. It's their unique value add that if you could just go to CompUSA and buy it or go to Siebel and buy it, uh, or Oracle or Microsoft Dynamics, then it might not be the most interesting thing to their board at the time. 
I would rather take the power of the platform that we have today and the ubiquity, hopefully the future ubiquity of Silverlight, and use the power of that to build an experience around something that you can't currently do or people don't even know that you could do today. And I also just want to, uh, again, say how much I really enjoy your sense of aesthetic and your software like Family Show and the Grok Talks and that bridge picture. I mean, you know, just it seems like everything that you do and you guys do is really, really beautiful. So, Well, every programmer has that in them. You see people obsessing over the refactoring, and I love that. I really like to talk to engineers about the right way, the, 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 you know, the ideal way to do something and the debate that that creates because that same debate exists in the world of art and exists in, in any kind of creative endeavor because you have multiple ways to do something. And it's fun to see people talk about just how we're going to name this function and the variable name, the class decomposition. Right. Th- that's still there. It's just it's hidden from the end user. And that same level of creativity can come from the engineer when they work with designers to create an experience that people don't cringe at. Very cool. Scott, what can I say? It's been great to have you back on the show. We, we covered a lot of topics today. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah, I was just thinking, what am I going to name this show? Uh, yeah, I was thinking the same. But, the, you know, you spat out the word that resonated for me right at the end there. And I've called the show Scott Stanfield on Vertigo and Software Aesthetics. Nice. I think nice. that works. I like it. Well, All gentlemen, right. thank you for inviting me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to me babble. All right. We'll see you soon. Maybe Tech Ed? Yes. All right. We'll see you there. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Transmit a band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a